0: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can find your seats and turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel in chapter 11. We will, of course, continue to have fellowship time immediately following service in the fellowship hall. Just a reminder that we are in the fellowship hall now downstairs, lovely air conditioned fellowship hall. So we can uh, gather there and continue our conversations. We have a rather long study today. I I will admit a very challenging study to teach. There are times when I teach Daniel chapter 11 where I just want to hand out my notes and go to Daniel chapter 12 because there's so much here. And, And I'm going to ask you to bear with me. I know not everyone is interested in dates and the particulars of the wars of the Ptolemies and the Seleucidae, but... We're going to go through this, but the point of what we're going to study today comes down to God being in control of all things. Again, the theme of the book of Daniel, God's sovereignty. God is in control of everything, to the point where he, quite frankly, has written in some type of record called the book of truth, which we talked about last week, all of the particulars of every facet of human history in advance. Now what's great about that is, You don't know what you're going to have for lunch, maybe. Maybe you already do. But when you go to that restaurant and you look at the menu, God knows exactly what you're going to order. But He also knows what's going to happen in Ukraine. He also knows what's going to happen in our nation, our great nation, which is not so great at the moment. He knows what's going to happen in this very dark and desperate world. And as we saw on Wednesday evening, we found out that God can turn things around very quickly. As we saw, King Ahaz, one of the most wicked kings replaced by his son King Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings that ever ruled the kingdom of Judah. So if you're counting out our country and our culture and you've stopped praying and you've given up, then you probably don't want to be here today because I'm going to encourage you to trust in God and believe all things. For God is capable to do all things because with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you We understand your word gives us information for a reason, and every chapter, and every book, and every section is written with a specific purpose. And this morning, as we look at this record of history, which was prophecy until it was fulfilled, we recognize that you give us history in advance, so that when these things happen, we'll believe. And I pray that you help me to be able to explain this in a way that's not too technical, but doesn't lose the point of trusting that you know all things. But may we learn a few things, and for those who enjoy history, may they gain a better understanding of the history that's recorded and was recorded in advance in your word. We ask these things, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) This chapter from verse 2 to verse 35 is all about the prophetic history of the wars of the Ptolemies and the Seleucidae. And you'll do yourself a favor if you listen to what I'm about to say. The Ptolemies were in the south. The Seleucidae were in the north. So as we go back and forth, you're going to hear names like Seleucus or Seleucus. And you're going to hear Antiochus or Antiochus. Those are the northern kings. And then in the south, you're going to have these kings, the Ptolemies. And so as we go back and forth, it's not so important because there won't be a test... It's not so important that you remember the exact history, the dates of everything that we're going to talk about. What is important is that you know that Daniel was, res- was given by an angel we were introduced to last week. He was given a record of history of 500 years, 500 years of history that concerned the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the Jews, 500 years of history before it happened, And to me, if there's a case to be made that you can trust the Bible, it's certainly because history has been written down in advance. So what I'm going to attempt to do is share some of these historical narratives, first give you the prophecy, and then share with you how, or briefly, how it was fulfilled. And it starts by getting us from the kingdom of Persia to the kingdom of Greece. Remember, Daniel is writing this around 536 B.C. He's about three years into the Persian empire having taken over the Babylonian empire, which was predicted earlier in his life in chapters two and chapter seven of this book. So now we find a transition and we look at verse two, and the point of verse two is to tell us how that will happen and some of the significant highlights. And he starts by saying, now then, this is the angel sharing with Daniel an excerpt from the Book of Truth. He says, Now that I will tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the Kingdom of Greece. So you see, what we're, what we're being given is the history of how the Persian Empire, which is the dominant empire at this time, is going to be eventually replaced by the Greek Empire, And then we're given the particulars of how the Greek empire and the different kingdoms within it affect Israel during the next 500 years. Okay? So let's go through this quickly. I think you'll be impressed with how much he received in terms of history in advance. Now, we do know this. This angel is revealing to Daniel that there will be four Persian kings who will follow Cyrus the Great, who is in power and in his third year reigning over Babylon and the surrounding empire. Now, the first to succeed Cyrus was his son, Cambyses, and that took place a few years later in 528 BC. I believe Cyrus was killed in battle in 530 BC. But the second to succeed Cyrus was a man by the name of Gomata. He was an imposter, and he was called pseudo Smurtis. and the reason is the real Smyrdas, who was the younger brother of Cambyses, was secretly murdered by his brother. This is so much intrigue. It's incredible. It's like a soap opera. Or, like an episode in the, in the Godfather saga. People get killed, and it's just amazing, really. And it's, it's actual history, but we're told in advance that these things would happen, that there'd be four kings. And we know that uh, Cambyses secretly murders his brother, and then someone who looks just like him decides to pretend to be him. And he was called Pseudo or False Smerdus. His name was Gamata. He briefly seized power, and then. The third to succeed Cyrus was actually Cyrus's son-in-law, Darius Histuspes, and that took place in 522 B.C. So what I'm telling you is the angel said there'll be four more kings, and I'm sharing with you all of the different kings. Finally, there's the fourth king, and we're told that he'll be very wealthy. Well, as it turns out, the fourth to succeed Cyrus was his grandson and the son of Darius Histuspes, Xerxes the Great, and this took place in 486 B.C. Now, he wasn't the last Persian king. The angel didn't say there would only be four, just that there would be four, and the fourth one would be very wealthy. And he was extremely wealthy, and you know Xerxes, I'm sure, because if you've ever read the book of Esther, then you're familiar with the king that married Queen Esther. So this kind of connects the dots of some of the biblical books you've read and are familiar with in a historical context. Of course, Daniel's told in advance. Now, this man had an army of 2.5 million men. Take that in. That's almost as many as crossed the border this afternoon. (laughs) 2.5 million men. That's a lot. And he used those men to attack Greece. And the army was defeated due to its great size at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. Now, this is history. And we know that sometimes a large army is not as good as a small army. Some of the best fighting forces are small. I think if there are any Marines here today, they might agree with me. So, somebody said, hurrah. So, yeah, there you go. So, sometimes a smaller fighting force is better. If you remember the Spanish Armada when they attacked during Queen Elizabeth uh, first reign, uh, part of the problem there were too many of them, too many ships, and so they were able to be burned. But here's the thing sometimes too much is too much. This man overplayed his hand, and even with 2.5 million men, he was defeated. And this heated the anger of Greece against Persia. Now there becomes this problem, and maybe you're familiar with uh, older movies like uh, The 300 Spartans, or you're familiar with the histories of Persia and Greece. Here's the thing. These people started to really despise one another. And Daniel's already shared with us the prophecies that said we, the world dominance would go from Persia to Greece. It took hundreds of years, but it ultimately did happen, just as God said it would happen. And then something else we read in verses 3 through 4, and this is pretty interesting. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And after he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. This is written in 536 BC. Why is that important? Now, I told you I would ask this question again in our studies in Daniel. Who was the founder of the Greek empire? Let's try that again. Let's pretend you were listening the last time I gave you the answer to this. Who was the founder of the Greek empire? Alexander the Great. Did you say Alexander the Great? You're right. You see, the thing is, so much is written about Alexander that there's a a, a story. We don't know entirely whether it's true. But then when Alexander came to Jerusalem, the priests and the scribes, they brought the book of Daniel, which was written hundreds of years earlier, to him and showed him what God had said would happen. And he immediately recognized himself as the mighty king predicted by Daniel. Now, again, we don't know. We don't have that documented. That's just history or traditional history. It's not something we can validate. But if that happened, it wouldn't surprise me that Alexander the Great was able to read this and come to the conclusion that God had ordained for him to be this mighty king, even though he was a wicked man. And sometimes God ordains for wicked men to be in power. You shouldn't be surprised by that. Okay, so the angel revealed to Daniel that a mighty king would appear. Now, the mighty king that appears, Alexander the Great, His reign was from 336 to 323 BC. So as the numbers get lower, we get closer and closer to the time of Christ. That's really what I want you to pay attention to. Don't worry about memorizing the dates. Just recognize that this is the history of 500 years leading up to the time of Messiah. And in chapter 9, Daniel was told exactly when the Messiah would come to the day. Now, he attacked Persia, Alexander the Great, attacked Persia, defeated Darius Cotomanus in 329 BC. And, of course, this was in response to the invasion of Greece by Xerxes the Great 150 years earlier. The Greeks were perfectly content to live in peace until the Persians attacked them, and then for 150 years, they tried to figure out how to defeat the Persians. They ultimately did. Sadly, I guess sadly, Alexander the Great, (coughs) Alexander the Great, was uh, a person that did a lot of sinful things. He died in a drunken revelry in 323 BC. So he ruled the world, a young man, around 30 years old, and died because he partied himself to death. And that's exactly what the scripture said would happen. And Alexander's empire was divided into four lesser kingdoms, ruled by his generals after the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC. So the empire stayed together, but these four generals took over, and they ultimately become the kings that we're going to be talking about in the rest of this chapter. The four successors establish themselves towards the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, west, right? First, I mentioned them already, you have in the south Ptolemy. He's called the king of the south in Daniel 11 because Egypt is south of Israel. Okay, so he was in Egypt and northern Africa. Then you have to the east, although to the north of Israel, but to the east of Greece, Seleucus, who is called the king of the north in this chapter, Daniel 11. And he ruled over Syria and Asia Minor. So this is all from the perspective of Israel. King of the north was actually to the east of the Grecian Empire. King of the south was to the south of the Grecian Empire. So we call him the king of the north, call him the king of the south. And as we talk about that, that gives you a frame of reference. And while this isn't a geography lesson, it is very helpful to know the basic geography of the Middle East. It will help you to understand the scriptures more. There was uh, a king of the north uh, that was to the north of the Greek Empire. This was Lysicomus. He's not mentioned in scripture. He ruled in Thrace in Eastern Europe, so we're not going to talk about him. And the fourth general was to the west of the Greek Empire. He was Cassander. He's only mentioned once in scripture, trivia, Zechariah 9.13, the king of Greece. So he was in Macedonia and all of Greece proper. So we're just going to talk about two of the four generals, the one to the north and the one to the south of Israel. That'll help you to understand what I'm going to say and what I'm going to share. Now, we're told specifically that the kingdom, Alexander's kingdom, would not go to his sons. We're told that specifically, we read it already, Interestingly enough, Alexander's sons, whose names were Hercules and Alexander, did not succeed him. One died before him, and one died after. Neither succeeded him, exactly like God's word said. Is God in control? Amen. Okay, we'll move on, because you didn't come here to learn about the history of Persian Greece. You came here to be encouraged in your faith, but in order to do that, I have to share a few facts. Now, in verses 5 and 6, the angel revealed to Daniel that these kings of the north and the south would appear. I've already introduced you to them. Here's what we read. In verse 5, we read, the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power. And he... And his power will not last. And in those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Now, why would the angel give such specific details about the history of empires in Persia and Greece? Because this is the history of Israel. These empires dramatically impacted and affected the children of Israel or the Jews living in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Why would though this information be necessary? Well, Daniel was writing this down, we have it today, for the future generations so that they would know that God is sovereign. So that when these things happen, they would believe and they would trust God. Remember Daniel's mourning because his nation is in disarray and the people haven't left Persia to go back to Greece and yet the angels making it clear to him not only are your people going to uh, go, I'm sorry go back to Jerusalem uh they are not going to be staying in Persia they're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to interact with the kings of Greece that's the general uh, gist of what's being declared but the details are so specific it's just fascinating to consider the power of the word of God so what we learned here is that these kings of the north and the south would appear. Now, here's what happened. A man by the name of Ptolemy Lagus, it's called the king of the south, as Egypt and northern Africa to the south of Israel, he emerges the strongest of Alexander's four generals. And this other man, Seleucus Nicator, is subjecting him, and then the man dies. Lagus dies, and he's succeeded by a man by the name of Ptolemy Soter and then the power shifts. Again, all predicted in advance. And then this king of the north, again, name not as important as the fact that he's to the north, in Syria and Asia Minor, uh, he annexes Babylon, media, and the surrounding nations, and then he becomes stronger than Ptolemy in the south. And that's exactly what Daniel said would happen. And so the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucidae in the north form an alliance between their kingdoms. And history tells us that Seleucus Nicator's grandson, whose name was Antiochus Theos, he signed a treaty with Ptolemy Philadelphus. They signed a treaty. We just learned that they would sign a treaty. In fact, Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice, was given in marriage to Antiochus Theos. Exactly what they said. This happened. Now, the alliance between these two groups of people failed, as alliances often do. And what Antiochus Theos did, he had divorced his wife, Laodice, to marry his current wife, Bernice, who was from the south. That was supposed to bring the kingdoms together. Well, Laodice didn't like this very much. So she had Bernice, her sons, and all of her attendants killed after her father died. She didn't like the marriage. It wasn't arranged according to her specs, and she decided to take out her competition. And Laodice was reinstated as queen with her sons as heirs to the throne. This literally happened and it's described, not even vaguely, it's described quite accurately in the book of truth that's shared with Daniel. Oh by the way, she went on to poison her ex-husband Antiochus Theos and crown her son Silicus Callinicus as king. So the intrigue continues and what's important is you see it was all predicted in advance. Let's continue. Now in verses 7 and 8, we start to see that the angel revealed to Daniel that the king of the south would defeat the king of the north. Of course, now there's bad blood, right? And so we read in verses 7 and 8, we read one from her family line, that would be the south, will arise to take her place. And, and, and well, this would be her, uh, her relative in the south. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress, and he will fight against them and be victorious. He will seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Now, what happened? Well, history tells us that the Ptolemies in the south did attack the Seleucidae in the north after their alliance failed. It did happen. In fact, Bernice's brother, Ptolemy Ugoides, raised a large army to avenge his sister because his sister was murdered. And he utterly defeated the king of the north, reaping immense spoil. But then Ptolemy from the south was called back to Egypt to deal with a sedition, and he never returned to Syria again, again exactly what was predicted. He left him alone. And then Ugerdes in the south, Ptolemy and reigned at peace with Seleucus Callinicus for the next four years. Then we move on. In verses 9 and 10, we see that the Seleucidae in the north attacked the Ptolemies in the south after four years of peace. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but he will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Well, what happened? Well, the king of the north attacked the king of the south after four years of peace. Now, the king of the north tried but failed to invade Egypt. He actually fell off of his horse, retreated and died shortly thereafter. His sons, whose names were Saronius and Antiochus the Great, who is definitely a, a major figure in history, they prepared a great army for retribution. One son, Saronus, died within two years, but Antiochus the Great led 75,000 men against Ptolemy Philopater in the south and was, as we said, uh, victorious. In fact, the Ptolemies, uh, they, they defeated successfully defeated Egypt at a battle that's called the Battle of Raphia. Look at verses 11 through 12. We're given the details in advance. By this point, you should be seeing that God knows all things. Amen? Well, the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. And when the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. So, history tells us, and I'm just going to go with the king of the south, king of the north, because by this point, you, you've, you can't follow all these names, and I, you don't need to. King, king of the south, Egypt, king of the north, Syria. At this point, the king of the south successfully defended Egypt, and he reconquered Syria, and he put Antiochus the Great under tribute, and then he gave himself over to wickedness and debauchery, just like Alexander the Great. And Antiochus the Great began to rebel in Syria, resulting in a peace treaty with the king of the south. And Ptolemy Philopator, the king of the south, uh, was succeeded by a child, a mere child. His name was Ptolemy Epiphanes, and Egypt then declined in power, exactly as was described. Okay, we got through that section. Now, the angel also revealed to Daniel that the king of the north would defeat the king of the south. So you see, the power continues to shift back and forth between these Greek powers. They're all Greeks. It's actually all Greek to me. But it's, it's, it's Greek history, but it's Israeli history. It's Jewish history, written in advance. So you'll believe. Okay, so I'll go through this quickly. Verses 13 through 16. The Seleucidae of the North attacked the Ptolemies once again, and it kind of goes back and forth here. Verse 13, we read, For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. And in those times many will rise against the king of the south, and the violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. You see that? Jews get involved in the conflict now. Violent Jews get involved in the conflict. And then the king of the north will come and build up a siege ramps and will capture a fortified city, and the forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. And he will establish himself in the beautiful land, which is a reference to Israel, in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. So now we begin to understand why all of this detail is given. By the time things started to impact the people of Israel, that is, the Jews, they would have had a track record of hundreds of years of Jewish history having been predicted in advance. Imagine if tomorrow you received a book or even an email that said, this is what's going to happen in the next 50 years of your life. Uh, you might and Let me tell you something, that would be impressive, right? Imagine knowing all those things. Some of you guys are thinking I'd play lotto, pick pick six, some of you guys are thinking, you know, I, I, I bet on sports events, maybe you'd get into a DeLorean, go back in time, who knows? But here, here's what I do know. I do know that God knows all things and reveals them to those that he wishes to know them. He didn't give them such detail that they could change it, but he gave them enough detail so that when it happened, they would believe. Now, that's, that's symbolic of every prophecy in the Bible. Biblical prophecy is given to us so when it happens, we'll believe. Not so we can play lotto numbers and predict the future. And if you understand that about biblical history or biblical prophecy, then you'll understand it in a way that's beneficial. If you get caught up in trying to predict what's going to happen, that will be detrimental to your faith. Because what happens when you get it wrong? And you will get it wrong. Do you really think you're wise enough and smart enough to take the word of God and predict what's going to happen. Many people do. They have lots of podcasts and books written and all kinds of newsletters. And almost always they get it wrong. So I stopped listening to those types of people a long time ago. If you send me a YouTube video or some kind of a conspiracy theory, I'm not going to watch it or read it. Just telling you now, nothing personal. I don't have time for that. I want to be in God's word. Because God's word tells me what's going to happen in a way that I need to receive it. And there's a lot of people out there trying to predict things and sell books in order to do it. And I'm just going to tell you, that's not my thing. It's not who I am. It's not how I teach. And that's not really what the Bible is all about. Well, basically, the Seleucidae in the north attacked the Ptolemies once again. And Antiochus the Great, from the north, he capitalizes on Egypt's weakness. He forms an alliance with with Philip III of Macedon, which is now the Greek empire to his west. Okay, closer to northern Greece. Remember, there were four. And Antiochus the Great, he rallies the Jews, most of whom refused, except a few violent men. Sound familiar? The Syrian alliance besieged Jerusalem and caused the general Scopius to flee to Sidon on the coast. Scopius was defeated at the fortified city of Sidon, and further attempts at resistance were fruitless. Antiochus the Great then entered Israel in triumph and Jerusalem enjoyed a brief time of peace. You see why that would be important for them to know? Then the Ptolemies in the Seleucid day, once again, they form an alliance between their kingdoms. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, look at verse 17. We read there that he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. So the king of the north comes with his entire kingdom, uh, entire forces. The might of his kingdom, and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Now, this is a really interesting uh, account because what happened here is Antiochus in the north gave his daughter Cleopatra. Now, that's this is not the Cleopatra you all know, Elizabeth Taylor. You know the movie. No, this is not that Cleopatra. There were a number of Cleopatras. Okay, that's much later during the time of Mark, Anthony, Julius Caesar. This is just the same name, okay? So don't be confused. He gives his daughter Cleopatra in marriage to the king of the south because he expected that his daughter would assist him in overthrowing her husband's kingdom. Now, I don't know if you notice, parents, your kids don't always do what you expect them to do. Have you noticed that yet? And that's what happened here. Surprisingly, Cleopatra supported her husband, Maybe she had daddy issues. I don't know. But she supported her husband, Ptolemy Epiphanes, against her father, frustrating his plans. Gee, his plans didn't succeed. That sounds familiar as well, doesn't it? I think by this point you're getting the gist of it. But while the Seleucidae in the north tried unsuccessfully to conquer an area that's referred to as the coastlands, which isn't even a cryptic reference to Greece. But let's look at verses 18 through 19. We'll get through this quickly. In verses 18 through 19... We read, then he will return his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Well, this is interesting because Antiochus the Great attempted to conquer Greece. That is... The, the, the Greece proper. He was also Greek. He was also one of the four generals. So the king of the north goes against this area called Greece proper. And he took many of the Aegean islands. Greece had recently aligned with Rome, which was emerging on the scene. And Daniel had shared that prediction with us as well. Isn't it amazing? He never gets it wrong because it comes from God. Amen? I mean, just getting these empires in the right order... Forget about the details of who marries who and who kills who. Just getting them in the right order would be impossible for you or me over the next 500 years. Are you starting to get the picture? God is in control. I want to stop and just take a pulse. God is in control. Oh, but he, he's not in control anymore? Like the United States of America is, is run amok? Or it's over? God's not in control of what's happening in our nation with the political parties? Oh, you know, he's just sort of let it go? No. God is in control, amen? And that's what this shows us. So, here's what happened. He, uh, the Greek empire at this point, or the, or the kingdom of Greece, recently aligned with Rome. They sent a man by the name of Lucius Scipio Asiaticus, a man well known to history. He comes with an army of tried warriors, and he soundly defeats Antiochus at the Battle of Magnesia. And this takes place in 190 BC. Are we getting closer to the birth of Christ? 500 years of human history in advance. Lucius Asiaticus, Scipio Asiaticus, sent Antiochus back to Syria under tribute. That is, he now serves him. But here's what Antiochus did. He attempted to plunder the Temple of Jupiter at Alemaius at when he got back to Syria, and that got even his own people aggravated with him. And Antiochus was killed by the infuriated populace who considered his act most sacrilegious. But Antiochus the Great had ruled in Syria for a total of 40 years. So he was around for a long time. But did the scripture just tell us what would happen to him? Yes. Did it? Yes, it did. Okay. Finally, in this section in verse 20, we read, his successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. And in a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. I just am so amazed with the specifics that are given to Daniel here. Well, the Seleucidae in the north tried unsuccessfully to raise funds through taxation. They did. And uh, Philopater, who is the, uh, who is the actual successor to Antiochus the Great, he, well, Syria had become bankrupt because of the way that Antiochus the Great had behaved. They became bankrupt, and this forced this man to heavily tax the people. We know what that feels like, right? I mean, we live in New Jersey. Well, Seleucus Philopater sent a tax collector, and we actually know his name, history tells us his name was Heliodorus, and he plundered the Temple of Jerusalem. Now, why is that important to the Jews? Ah, because that's their temple, and now they know in advance that that's going to happen. Heliodorus returned to Syria. And guess what he did? First thing he did? He assassinated Seleucus Philopater. He took out his king. And he had only ruled for 12 years. So there's so much turmoil in this Greek world, in this Greco-Roman world. But at any point, was God not in control? No. He was in complete and total control the whole time. Flash forward over 2,000 years. There is so much turmoil in our world. Every other day we hear of some other crazy thing happening somewhere in, or in our own backyard. Crime, inflation, chain, or the supply chain issues, wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters. At what point are we going to trust God? At what point are we going to realize that God has all of this figured out in advance because he knows all things, and he's communicated enough to us to trust him. Amen? So if you're not trusting him, then you're not reading your Bible. If you're reading your Bible and you're not trusting him, you're reading it for the wrong reason in the wrong way. A chapter like this will make it abundantly clear that God is trustworthy. Amen? Okay, let's continue. Well, in the next section here, and I'll get through as much of this as I can, it's, it's, again, the details are not as significant as the overwhelming theme, okay? We read in verses 21 through 24, the angel reveals to Daniel that another king is going to appear. He's a contemptible king of the north, and interestingly enough, we talked a lot about this king back in chapter 8. History tells us that a contemptible king appeared, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus the Magnificent. He wasn't content with being called the Great. So the Magnificent. Well, anyway, let's read verses 21 through 24. We're told that this king that we just talked about will be succeeded by a contemptible person. Again, this is in the north. Who has not been given the title of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its peoples feel secure. And he will seize it through intrigue. And then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant. Which when we were in Daniel 8 we talked about is a reference to the high priest of the Jews. The prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. Sounds like our last election. And when the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers or his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. See, God knows how long each king is placed in power and for his purposes. And I want you to remember that as we see the next couple of years in our nation. I get very upset when I see Christians freaking out about the future. God knows the future. He knows all things. Amen? That, again, that's really the issue here. That's why I keep bringing us back to that. Okay, this contemptible king, he was represented by the little horn in Daniel's vision in chapter 8. So we talked a lot about him already. Remember, Daniel saw a little horn or power come up out of one of the horns of the goat, which represented Greece, and that's accurate. Daniel was told that this little horn or power represented a stern-faced king and a master of intrigue. We've already been introduced to him. This man, Antiochus Epiphanes, seized power in Syria, but he did it through treachery and the politics of deceit during a time of peace. He signed a treaty with the king of the south and the Jews, and he created a false Peace. That's interesting because this theme will be repeated again in our future. Well, then he defeated the king of the south, took control of the temple priesthood in Jerusalem, destroyed the prince of the covenant or the high priest of God's people, rose to power through false treaties and agreements with the help of a very few supporters. He invaded the richest provinces when they felt safe, successfully plundered them, and was able to achieve what the previous kings of the north could not. He bought his supporters, uh, excuse me, he bought his supporters by distributing the spoils of war to them. What you need to know about our world today is China is buying supporters throughout the world, bought and paid for. I would suggest most of our White House staff. I would suggest Bill Gates and lots of the wealthiest people in our, in our world. They're bought and paid for, many politicians. Oh, no, what do we do now, take up arms? No, pray. Yeah, powers like to buy allies. We've seen this, George Soros. We've seen this in our world. They're buying people, putting them in office, giving them unbelievable amounts of money, and then controlling them. But is God bigger than that? Do you think a a nation like China as powerful as it is and wealthy as it is, is bigger than God? China is not your enemy. The devil is. And he uses nations like China and Russia and the United States of America. But God gives him a short leash because ultimately God is in control. Well, the kings of the north attacked the Ptolemies once again. Look at verses 25 through 28. We're making it through. You're you're doing great. Okay. Verse 25, with a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. And the king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army. But he will not be able to stand because of the plots plots devised against him. So those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, check out this detail, The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other. That's not hard to imagine, right? But to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. You know, just stopping right there, what we do know, history tells us, the north did attack the south again. Antiochus Epiphanes attacked Ptolemy Philota with a large army, exactly as predicted, and, and the king of the south tried but failed to defend Egypt with his very powerful army. But he was defeated, and Antiochus Epiphanes won through the treason of his own household. People worked against him, and that's why the man in the south couldn't win. Well, the king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, also signed a treaty, with Ptolemy in the south and he created a false peace. The devil likes to do this, by the way. We're going to see this again in biblical prophecy about the future. When they say peace, peace, sudden destruction comes. Beware of false peace. False peace is like making a deal with Iran. That would be false peace. False peace, making an agreement with a nation like Russia. False peace. Beware of false peace because destruction almost always comes afterwards. Well, that's what happened here. Interestingly enough, both these men agreed to a false truce while sitting at the same table. It actually happened, as Daniel records. And then Antiochus Epiphanes returns to Syria after having amassed great wealth through his many victories. Now, but he's angry. You know why he's angry? The Jews heard a rumor, fake news, that he died. And they started celebrating that he had been slain in Egypt, but it was not true. Somebody must have posted it on Twitter, because we all know that's not true. And then he comes back to Jerusalem. He's such an egomaniac. He desolates Jerusalem. And what did the Jews do? What could they do? You know who they appealed to? Rome. They asked for Rome to intercede and provide assistance. Well, the kings of the north attacked the Ptolemies once again. Verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships off of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. And then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Interesting. Well, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. That's interesting because we've talked about that before. What happened here is that Antiochus Epiphanes attacked Israel and Egypt. But guess who checked him? A man by the name of Pompilius Leonis of Rome, the western coastlands. The ships of the western coastlands came, and Rome demanded that he keep the peace. They were all about the Pax Romana. They were all about keeping peace. And they came in, and and they forced this man to acknowledge Rome's authority. Antiochus asked this man for time to consider Rome's demands, He was not in a position to bargain. And I love this account. This is what history tells us. Leonis, the the Roman, he drew a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes, and he demanded that he decide before exiting it. In other words, you don't have any time. Make your decision now. Something tells me he didn't like that very much. Well, he agreed, but falsely. And then he goes to Jerusalem, desecrates the Jewish temple, destroys Jerusalem. Why would the Jews need to know that? Because God is in control, and he wanted them to know in advance these things that would happen. He did this in retaliation against the Jews that had appealed to Rome for assistance. See, when they did that, they got him in trouble. And so he's retaliating. He showed favor to those treacherous Jews that supported him and forsook God's covenant. There were some treacherous Jews who supported this man. And he set up a statue of Zeus in the Jewish temple and sacrificed a pig upon the temple altar. And then he declared that he alone should be worshipped, and he caused the sacrifice to cease in 167 B.C. And so we're getting closer. You know, that's a lot of information, so I'm going to stop there. That's enough for you to get the gist of it. We'll, we'll pick it up uh, next week, and uh, we'll pick it up in verse 32. We'll talk about the Maccabees, and we'll talk about more about Antiochus Epiphanes, but also we'll talk more about the man that... Antiochus Epiphanes is a symbol of, or a type of, in the future, our future yet to come. I just, I know that some of you love this stuff, and some of you are like, what in the world is pastor talking about this morning? Well, I'm reading God's Word, so you can't go wrong. His Word doesn't return void. But what I try to do, and I'm trying to do through this section of God's Word, is simply encourage you in your faith. Forget the dates. Forget 167 BC. Forget the Ptolemies and the Seleucid day think about this. God knows your future. God knows your life before it began in the womb. God knows everything that will happen in our world. All you and I, all we need to do is trust him. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful that you've recorded these things for our benefit. You've recorded these things for your glory and for our faith. And Lord, we can study these things further and memorize dates and times, but the most important thing is to know that you can communicate to us through your word the future before it happens and build us up in our faith. Lord, we want to trust you. We're not concerned about what happened 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. We're concerned about what happens in the next three days, in the next week or two, or this next year before the next election. And Lord, there is this overwhelming sense that we have that somehow we have to be in control. But it's not true. Because you're in control. You're sovereign. May we leave this place today knowing that truth. If your word that we read today hasn't proved that yet, then we're just not going to believe. Because there's simply no way that a book that was written by Daniel, actually recorded by Daniel, was written by God. But this... Excerpt from the book of truth. There's simply no way that all of the verses we read today could be fulfilled so precisely unless you wrote it. For you know all things. May each and every one of us be encouraged in our most holy faith as we serve you. May we trust you. May the sign of our trusting you be the peace that we have in our dark and desperate world. Lord, help us to trust you with our families with our lives, with our jobs, with our economy, with our nation, with the world we live in, with our everything. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.